19th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And a study this morning that I've entitled a tiara of tears and troubles. We now draw our attention to Jerusalem. We've arrived with Jesus and the disciples. They've been traveling the Jericho Road. They now have come to Bethany, to Bethpage, just outside of Jerusalem. And as you look at this map, there's a little tiny blue line that indicates there's a small road, a trail system that heads up over the Mount of Olives. And to give you an idea, there is a scale there. It shows you this is a very compact area, a very small area. It's not large at all. It's just a handful of miles. And Jesus is going to spend the remainder, the last week of his life. We've now come to Sunday. By Friday, he will be dead. And so Jesus is spending this last week transiting initially between Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, between Bethany and Jerusalem itself, specifically initially the Temple Mount. And so Jesus has now come to that place where he is going to fulfill the purpose for which he came to earth. People often say, well, you know, we want to focus in on the the miracles and the words of Jesus. We like what he had to say about loving your neighbor. We like the fact that he healed people. He caused the blind to see and the lame to walk. But those were only things that Jesus did that might bear witness to what he really came to do. He came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to this earth for the express purpose of dying for you and I. And then being raised again on the third day, being the first fruit of that eternal life, that we might also have eternal life. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us by the power of His Word this morning. Father, we have come, Lord, much like the crowd, following along with the disciples, listening, Lord Jesus, to You speak. And we pray this morning that this crown, this this tiara, Lord, of tears and troubles, that we would understand what it is, what it cost for you to give your life for us. Lord, as you gaze down from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem, Lord God, we thank you that you didn't turn your back, you didn't walk away, you didn't say of us that we're not worth it. Lord, we are indebted eternally for the price that you paid. And so, God, we ask that you would take your word this morning and instruct us with it. Bless us, Lord, as we study. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So in that picture, probably many of you have read, and in fact there are uh, many this morning that are troubled over what's going on in Jerusalem. There was an American-born activist uh, who was gunned down at the Temple Mount this week. 
And for those of you that don't know, you don't keep track of such things, the Temple Mount is the most contested 20-plus acre parcel of land on the earth. It's not even a square kilometer. And yet it's being fought over to this day uh, by three, really, world religions, if you choose to look at them that way. You have, obviously, Judaism, which, from the time of Abraham until this day, the location of the Temple Mount has been the location of the holiest place in the Jewish faith. And it also has become, beginning about 632 A.D., uh, the third most holy site in Islam. And so there are two mosques, and you can kind of see the glow. That arrow points to the Temple Mount. You can see the Harim al-Sharif, the, the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Two mosques now sit on the Temple Mount. There is no Jewish temple. There in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, a 5,000-seat mosque at the south end overlooking the city of David, and there at nearly the north end, what we call the Dome of the Rock. And so looking in this view, you're looking from the south towards the north. You're looking at the Temple Mount, the center of Jerusalem, and you can see that it actually is in an area of low-lying hills. The Mount of Olives, uh, there on uh, your right side. And as Jesus would have come from Bethpage, from Bethany, he would have transited on that little trail up and over the Mount of Olives. That is the old ancient road, which then would descend down into the Kidron Valley, down to where we know Gethsemane to be, and from Gethsemane to the Lion's Gate or to the Eastern Gate, which would have all both been located on the side closest to the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus is not walking a terribly long distance. It's a mile and a half, roughly, uh, from the opposite side of the Mount of Olives down into the valley, into the area of the Temple Mount. And so he's not traveling far. It's an easy uh, hour stroll. It wouldn't take you very long even today, though you'd probably get run over by a tour bus or two. At this time, Jesus is traveling almost exclusively with his disciples. He has stopped, and as we know in John chapter 11, uh, he stops at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who is dead by John chapter 12. Uh, after Lazarus is raised, Mary anoints his feet, and so this is a place of safe haven. This is a place where he's loved and cared for. And so he stops there, and he will make a couple of trips from that home uh, to the area of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so this is where we find the Lord Jesus. And as he would crest over the Mount of Olives, that hill that was in that previous picture, he would have seen this view. This is the cemetery on the Mount of Olives. And as you get to the Mount of Olives and you stare down, you're looking into the Kedron Valley in the bottom. Uh, what would be to the right side of that picture is the descent to Gethsemane, which is the, the olive orchard that's there, the olive press, the place of pressing where Jesus will go and ultimately uh, be arrested. And he's traveling just this very short distance, and you can visually imagine yourself walking uh, this half mile or so down this descent to the valley floor, and then either to the eastern gate, which is walled in presently, or to the lion's gate, 
which would be to the right side there in the crusader walls. These walls that you see were not there at this time, much shorter walls. They would have descended along the valley down to the city of David, Zion, uh, which is to the south end. Uh, in the left side of that picture, you can see the Dome of the Rock Mosque, and to the left of that is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And so Jesus would have been heading to what would have been then the area of Herod's temple. It was pushed into the valley on three sides, the side you're looking at, the south side, which is where the city of David lies, and then the western side, which is where we know the Wailing Wall or the western wall exists, those giant stones that are there today that the Jews believe to be and is archaeologically accurate the actual abutment walls for Herod's temple. That is all that is left of that magnificent structure that took over 30 years to build. That wouldn't be completed until almost 26 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. And so Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And we pick up in verse 28, And when he had said this, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, ascending up the valley from Jericho on the road to Bethany, to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and he stares down towards Jerusalem. And it came to pass that he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet. And you have now just witnessed the same scene. He would have been looking down into that valley. It would have been much less inhabited. That giant cemetery that's there today would have been much smaller, but nonetheless still there. Uh, the tomb of Absalom in that valley. You, you would have seen similar things. The rock walls, though much shorter, would have existed around the same rough location as at least the eastern wall of what is now the Temple Mount. And as he does so, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you will enter, and you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, and loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks of you, why are you losing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And so this is the passage that we always refer to uh, in a message on a day that we call Palm Sunday, that Sunday of the arrival of Christ into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry. This is the passage, one of four. It's the only two things are listed in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000 and this the triumphal entry. And so Jesus sends his disciples after a donkey. And so those who were sent went on their way and found it just as he had said to them. Jesus, being God, would have had no problem understanding exactly where to find the donkey. Amen? If he can't find a donkey, I'm pretty sure the galaxies are a tough problem. He knows where everything is. Amen? He hasn't lost anything. That's why he can go after the lost sheep why he can find the lost coin. That's why we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins have been found. Amen? And so he says, and then those who were sent went their way and found it, just as he said, said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? Yeah, imagine. Now Jesus may have prepped the heart of this individual, may have even been a believer, we don't really know. But I know this, 
what God desires to do, God does. He, he can cause the miraculous of any flavor to happen. And so this man, this would have been a prized possession, by the way, would have been worth several years' salary. One donkey would have taken you a long time uh, to bring as, as one of your possessions into your household. Very, very, very uh, expensive. And certainly to have a donkey and a colt would have even been more expensive. And so two animals. And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as they went, many spread their clothes in the road. You know the story. We've covered it every single time we come to Easter week. You know the story, and the Gospels recount many other details that not only will they shout what is being shout, shouted here, the 118th Psalm, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But they would also shout, Hosanna, God save us now. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. This was a common thing, by the way. When you took off your garments, remember there were several things that were to the average person in that day and time of tremendous value, your outer cloak would have been if if you had one. Many people only had the tunic, the undergarment, in essence. A short skirt-like looking thing made out of very coarse woven fiber. But now they're taking off their more valuable garment and they're laying them in the road. It was a sign of submission to the king that would come. And they spread there, according to the other Gospels, palm fronds, also another sign that they were saying, Look, we believe you to be king. And we're spreading our garments on the road, trample over them if you wish, but we submit to your authority as king. And then as he was now drawing near the descent, so now he's come to the crest, that same view that you looked at. Come to the crest of the hill. And he's now on the downside. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works which they had seen. They're thinking, well, maybe what he said he didn't really mean. Maybe he's not going to die. I mean, after all, look at this crowd. It's huge. Now, you have to have an understanding of that day and time. This was Passover week. This is the week before Passover. The city is flooded. If you go there today, the population of Jerusalem is less than 800,000 people, Jerusalem itself. At that day and time, recorded by the Jewish historian Josephus, there were several hundred thousand sheep slaughtered, one for as many as ten in a family unit, and most families had that many people. Agrarian society. Kids meant you got to do your farming work. You could survive. You could exist. The population at that time may have swelled to perhaps as many as two to two and a half million people in this little tiny area that today does not, you saw how crowded it is, it today does not hold that many people. They would have been gathered everywhere. Very few water sources, a small stream in the bottom of the Kidron Valley, a small stream in the Gehenna Valley, which is to the south and wrapped around to the west. Springs on the hills, water carried in from wells. There would have been hundreds of thousands of people camped out everywhere. 
Basically, every Jew in the region of Judea would have come to Jerusalem for Passover week. Massive crowd. And so the disciples, seeing the huge crowd, looking down into the valley, gazing at Herod's temple, which at that time was on the Temple Mount, seeing this magnificent site, no Dome of the Rock mosque, they could look at the long building on the south side, which was the home of the Sanhedrin. And to its north side, the court of the women and the court of the Gentiles. And then the temple compound, the, port, the court of praise, the multicolored gate. All laying before the disciples. And so they shout, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We're looking at this magnificent scene going, finally, the crowning of our king. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And then, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Remember what they had said? We do not want this man to reign over us. That was still what they believed. That was still what they thought. And so you have the same picture today. There are those who praise God in the highest for Jesus. And there are those who say, we do not want this man to reign over us. But he answered and said to them, because this is the reason for which he came, amen? Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to do exactly what he had planned all along to do. That if these, you can circle that word, put a line back to your disciples, because that's what he's doing. He's saying, if these, my disciples, were to do what you ask, these very rocks would cry out. The hills themselves would cry out my name immediately. You see, God doesn't need us. God loves us. God didn't need the disciples. God loved the disciples. And so, less than two miles out, he's now on a journey down into the valley. He mounts this donkey. We see this coming. You see, we have very little to compare this to, but as you look back towards the Victorian era story that I've shared with you before, when Queen Elizabeth was crowned, it was somewhat less pomp and circumstance. But during the Victorian era, that era that we here in America can associate so greatly with, because the westward expansion from the East Coast uh, to the western part of our country really all happened roughly during that time. And in fact, in 1838, when Queen Victoria was actually crowned, uh, at her coronation, you see, we kind of associate a coronation with something rather grand. Uh, in her crown, encrusted with giant rubies and sapphires, in the crown was a 309 carat diamond. On her scepter was a 516 and a half carat diamond. Those are the jewels that you can go visit in the Tower of London today. You can go see the crown jewels of England. You, you see, we think of that kind of coronation. 
In fact, when uh, Princess Diana said yes to the dress, uh, that, that dress was $250,000 just for the dress, that 25-foot-long train. And then we come to the real king, the one who's the rightful deed holder to this earth, the one who created the universe from nothing. By his spoken word created all that is. If you believe in the Big Bang, he's the one that said bang and it was. Okay. You want the Big Bang, he's the big in the bang. He spoke it into existence. That's what your Bible says. You see, Jesus was a real king coming for a real kingdom. And as you view this particular event recorded there in these passages in Matthew 21, Mark 11, John 12, and here in Luke 19, this is a true coronation. Because he wasn't just king of a little tiny region. He, he wasn't this obscure carpenter, peasant guy who did a few things from Galilee. He was literally the right owner of the entire universe. He, he was the one to whom we all one day, and whether you believe in him or not, by the way, the Bible says one day everything will bow. One day, everyone is going to take that place of submission at the feet of Jesus. Whether you have served him, loved him, and committed your life to him or not, you're going to see Jesus for who he really is. And right now, I believe the horses are warming up in heaven. Because that king, the one who actually is the deed holder to this earth, one day is coming back. And he's going to put his feet on that same Mount of Olives. And he's going to claim what's rightfully his. You see, this appearance is the last public appearance before he's crucified. Jesus is going to allow himself to be worshipped here for a short period of time. And I think it's essential and I think it's wonderful that he did so. Because one could say if he had not done this very thing, if he had not allowed the praise of men, if he had not allowed himself to be anointed and appointed, if you will, at this time, one could say maybe it was so obscure that people could have missed it. But if you read the rest of the Gospels, you find that he was pronounced as the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to he who comes in the name of the Lord. God save us now. Praise to God in the highest. And Jesus allowed that because he was, in fact, the true king. The end of this very short period of time. Jesus had lived in obscurity for three, for 30 years. And for three years, maybe three and a half, Jesus is, is partaking of this public ministry and he's speaking all these things. But it was really all about this time. And John's Gospel, there in chapter 6, records in verse 38 very specifically, For I have come down from heaven. Though Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, 
He was God's Son come down from heaven. He was one of one. There's never been anybody like Him before. There will not be anybody like Him since. He is the only true King. He said, for this reason I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Amen? What's God's plan? This whole week, foretold by the prophets of old what would happen in such great detail that the world to this day still wonders if it were not a lie. Too accurate. Jesus comes on the Mount of Olives and he begins to speak. But within the week, he would be dead. I want to give you a couple of things about the foal of the donkey, the colt. Three-part message here. Notice a couple of things, if you would. As the colt comes, he says, when he said this, he sends them on ahead, and he gathers up this donkey to come to him. And he says, first, go into the village opposite you and enter, and you'll find that colt upon which no one has ever sat, and loose it. It had to be redeemed. There's a picture of you and I in the story of this foal of a donkey. There's a story of you and I and what happens to us in this tiny farm animal. First, it had to be redeemed. The law of Moses actually said that if the donkey was not redeemed, it's better to kill it than to let it live unredeemed there in Exodus chapter 13. Don't don't leave it to its own devices. Amen? That's why when we give our lives to Christ, it's, it's the picture of what God wanted all along for us. He wants to redeem us. He wants to buy us back. That word, word means to buy back at a price. Jesus is going to redeem us by his own very blood shed on Calvary's cross. And he says, go loose that donkey, redeem it, bring it here. It had to also be released. You see, the donkey was tied. It was in bondage. And are we not tied and in bondage before we come to Christ? Amen? By the things of the world. The price had to be paid. It needed to be released. He was tied to a post. He belonged to another master. Before you met Jesus, you belonged to another master. That master was sin. And the consequences of that other master would have been your eternal death without Jesus. You needed to be redeemed, and you needed to be released from that bondage of sin. And finally, it had to be ruled. And this is the part that we don't particularly care for as Christians. Amen? I have all kinds of people tell me, oh, I love the fact that Jesus is my Savior. I just hate the Lord part. I, I don't really want to be ruled over. I kind of like doing my own thing. And verse 35 says, And then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on him, and then they set Jesus upon him. You, you see, Jesus took the minion of this animal and said, Okay, you're now going to do what I tell you to do. Family of God, each of us in Christ Jesus must be redeemed. Each of us must be released from the sin that binds us, and each of us must be ruled by his power. That, that's the plan for our lives. This donkey is simply a picture of that. You see, as we think on our own lives, we 
then can imagine what the Lord is actually getting at when he says, and then some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, rebuke your disciples. That's why he says, look, I'm giving you a word picture here. I'm showing you what's going on. Do you get it? Take stock in what's being said. Take stock in what's being done. Open your eyes. You see, these same Pharisees, these same rulers of the Levites, the same priests, the same Sadducees, the ruling religious leadership by this time had built up the Mishnah, which is a commentary, in essence, on the first five books of Moses, not the whole Old Testament, but really the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, Numbers. You see, they were looking at this book uh, uh, that they call the book of the law and saying, okay, well, here's what you need to know about it. And by now, that had become ten times larger than the actual words of Moses itself. And that's why Jesus said, look, you have heaped upon them things that neither you nor your forebearers could actually do. They needed to be redeemed. They needed to be released. They needed to be ruled. They had lost their way. They had become wrapped up in tradition. He says, look, if my disciples didn't speak these things, if they didn't shout praise, then these rocks would do it because y'all need to be saved. You're in trouble. You're so buried and mired in religion. You are so up to your eyeballs in rules and regulations, trying to perform your own acts of righteousness, that you are completely lost. And so you can begin to see how now they're seething with anger. They're going, ah, we got to get rid of this guy. And so he turns his attention to them. This is prophecy fulfilled. That's what Psalm 118 was. It was what Zechariah 9.9 said would happen. Behold, your king is coming on the foal of a donkey. Isn't that what Zechariah said? Jesus is just saying, look, I'm him. This is what I came for. I'm doing what you should have understood that your king would come to. It was Jerusalem's moment. And the people begin to cry out. They begin to sing. And it looks like for a moment, as the Pharisees sneer and mock the disciples and Jesus, it looks like he was going to win. And so Jerusalem now is laying before Jesus. He's staring down at the city. He's looking at the Temple Mount, the city that he loved. Monumental, verse 41 says, And now as he drew near, standing up there on the Mount of Olives, at that time it would have been just an empty hill with some graves on it. He saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Think about it. You know, we think about Jerusalem today and all the conflict that goes on. Were it not for the 1967 war, the Jewish people, the Israeli Defense Forces, liberated the Temple Mount and then 
Within ten days it was given back to the rule of Jordan, back to the Arabs. But it was always God's city. There, there were no Muslim mosques on the Temple Mount. first one was built in 632 A.D. The second one was completed in 703 A.D. Abraham met God there 2,000 years before that. There on Mount Moriah. Abraham then met Melchizedek in the valley. David sees that very hill, the hill of Zion. 1,600 years before the first mosque was built there. Built there. It was always God's holy hill. From antiquity to this day. And as Jesus looked down, he, he was seeing what you and I can know from history. He, he could remember when Solomon, down there in the valley, the confluence of the Brook Kidron and the Hinnom Valley, as they worshipped at the altar of Baal. He could remember all the things that were done. And he's saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and yet that's not what they wanted. And so he said, if you had known even you, likely still speaking largely to the Pharisees, certainly in earshot of the disciples, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Jerusalem's very name means city of peace. And yet throughout antiquity, more than 30 full-blown sieges of the city of Jerusalem. The last one occurring in the mid-1100s under the Ottoman ruler Sahaladin. The Crusades had transpired. The Crusaders defeated. Running back to England. This city was besieged for two and a half thousand years. Time after time after time. The Jews forced out of their own land did not live there from the time of Christ and the destruction of Herod's temple under Flavius Titus, the Roman general who would go on to be emperor of Rome. From A.D. 70 to 1948, there would basically be no Jews really living in the land, speaking their own language, a few scattered in the hills, but they would lose control. And then in 1967, after regaining the territory, known to the world now as Palestine, because of the Roman rule of that land in an attempt to wipe out Judaism, wipe out the Jews entirely, they changed the name instead of the land of Judea to the land of Palestine. And Jesus sees all of it. He sees Moshe Dayan standing on the Temple Mount. He sees the IDF soldiers 
liberate the Temple Mount, and he sees them give the Temple Mount back to Jordan. He sees then Jordan's king say, well, we like this so much, I'm going to donate about $9 million of my own money so that we can put that nice gold lid on the Dome of the Rock Mosque. Jesus sees all of it. Especially this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Do you get it? Still hidden from their eyes. Prime Minister Netanyahu right now is going through the ringer. He's like, what do we do? Do you realize that Muhammad Abbas, the, the ruler of the Palestinian people, is calling now for the Temple Mount to be the actual literal capital of Palestine? And the world is pressuring the Jewish people to do exactly that. Do you realize that Jerusalem is not recognized by our own United States government as the capital of Israel? We only recognize Tel Aviv. And yet what city is most closely associated with the Jewish people? Is it not Jerusalem? And Jesus weeps over the city. For the days will come when you will... When your enemies will build an embankment around you, and it would be the Roman general Titus that would do that very thing. He would build a siege ramp. He would besiege the city of Jerusalem for 143 days. And after that 143 days, 600,000 Jewish people would lose their lives. He would kill everyone who would get in their way. Jesus sees that. You don't even know what makes for peace, but they will come and surround you. And then later, almost a thousand, a little over a thousand years later, the Crusaders would come from England. They're going to liberate the land of Palestine. And what happens? They lose to Sahaladin. Were it not been for his graciousness at the city of Echo, they would have been completely wiped out. And to this day, These things hold true. Close you in on every side and level you. When you go today, the only remnant, the western wall, the wailing wall, the thing that you all look at and associate, that's Jerusalem. All that that is, is the great western buttress stones that used to hold up the platform on which the temple used to stand. Only six levels of them even above ground. The rest of it's rubble underneath. You can tour underneath the city walls. You can actually go and see these gigantic stones placed there by Herod. Rolled in place on tiny lead balls, some of those stones weighing in excess of 60 tons. That's all that's there. That's it. What did Jesus say? Your children within you, they'll level it to the ground. They will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What visitation? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of glory. The Father of eternal life was visiting Jerusalem the last week of his life, and they said, we don't want this man to rule over us. And if you go today to this day, 
That is the truth. Were it not for the excavation of the rubble of the Temple Mount, you would not be able to see the Western Wall. That rubble moved away. That's why you can see Solomon's porch, the place where it used to be. That's why you can see Robinson's Arch. Only because it was unburied. Basically, he says, look, I'm weeping over this city because I know what's going to happen for the next several thousand years. I still don't get it. And I think it's so important for us to realize as we wrap up this morning, Jesus loved Caiaphas. Jesus loved Judas. Jesus loved Pilate. That's why he's weeping. You will not come. I'm coming so you can be released and redeemed and ruled over in your own heart so that you can be changed. But you don't want to have anything to do with it. Don't let that be you this morning. Don't let that be you this morning. Because there's a lot of people who still don't believe they need to be redeemed. There's still a lot of people this morning that don't believe they're under the sway of anything, and yet they're bound by sin. And there are an awful lot of people who refuse the lordship of Jesus Christ. Passover time was supposed to be a birthday celebration of the people. They were released from bondage. Isn't that what happened in Egypt? So as Jesus does these things, he's picturing the Passover, and he's picturing salvation. He's saying, look what happened when the angel of death passed over. Were you not redeemed by the blood on the doorpost and the lintels of your home? Were you not released when you crossed over the Red Sea? And when you got to Kadesh Barnea and you believed the lies of the ten spies, did I not still redeem you by putting my own presence with you in the wilderness? They were too proud. They wanted to hang on to their religion. They didn't want a relationship. You see, as Jesus looked, and as he would have stared down into the valley, just looking across, he would have been in likely this very olive grove just an hour or so later. As you go to Gethsemane today, it's widely believed that at least the, the remnants of those olive trees, olive trees can live for an indefinite period of time. They spread out, they branch out, a new tree pops up. The old tree maybe withers and dies, but some of those trees are believed to be old enough to have been there when Jesus sat underneath them, the olive press. As you looked out, and of course the Church of the Agony, which is there in the middle of that photo, wouldn't have been there. But the agony would take place there nonetheless. He would be heartbroken. And so as he finally looks at this woeful sight and he says, look, the day of the Lord's coming. It's still coming, folks. Jesus is coming. I don't know if it's today or tomorrow, but I know he's coming. Because every word he spoke has come true. 
So far as we can align it with, with history, what we see is what Jesus said absolutely was factual. What the Old Testament prophesied of came true in the life of Christ. I have no reason to believe that my king is not coming again. I'd have to be a fool to not believe it, actually. And so finally, to close this morning, and then he went to the temple. So it's now Monday. He's gone back to Bethany. He's come back. He's now in the temple. He began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, For it is written, and he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a brigand's den for pirates. You've made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple for four days. He would come and teach. He would go back to Bethany. He'd spend the night in Bethany. He'd come back and teach. And eventually he'd be arrested. But the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Still the picture to this day. Jesus goes wherever we go, and he speaks to people. His Holy Spirit in this world speaking to mankind still the same message. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Be redeemed, be released, be ruled over. The Lord's anger kindled, notice where it was kindled, at religion. It was kindled towards religion. It was kindled towards those who profited from the people coming to offer their sacrifice at Passover. The church was making a fortune off of it, if you will. They had set up in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles, do you know why it was there? Do you know why the court of the Gentiles even existed? It was the place that the Jewish people could share the one and true living God with anybody who would come. That was as far as a non-Jew could go. But in that place was the place where the Jews were to tell everybody else about Yahweh, Lord of hosts. That's what it was for. It was to allow them to get close enough to hear the prayers of the people. To see, even to some extent, the work that God was doing there in the court of sacrifice. And it had become a place of business. Woe unto any church that becomes a place of business. Woe unto any church that loses sight of why we're actually here. It's not to build giant edifices to the amazing things that God has done. It is to win souls to Christ. And then to cause people to walk with him and talk with him. Jesus, as I said, hates religion. He's never been a fan of religion. He came that we might have relationship. Jesus was crowned. He goes into those temple courts. 
But that crown was one of tears and one of troubles. Four days from now, Jesus will go to the cross. But he did that for you and for me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we honor you this morning. We honor our King, Jesus, this morning. And Lord, we are so grateful that from day one, from the beginning, you saw our plight, you knew our problem. You planned with purpose, Lord, to redeem us, to release us, to rule over us. We submit to your authority this morning. We pray that you would instruct us on how we might live our lives with the express purpose of honoring you. We love you. We praise you. Thank you, God, that no dusty hill, no dirty road, none of the disease, the danger, the filthiness, Lord, of of us kept you away. Lord, you loved us with all of our bumps and bruises. And for that reason, you were crowned in Jerusalem. And we look forward to that day when you come back. When you conquer. When sin is done. And when your kingdom begins. We love you. We praise you. We thank you and all God's people said. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship him and then we'll... Ask him to bless her offering.